Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney here, the host of How They Love Mary. I am grateful you listen to the podcast, and today I'm very excited to share with you a talk that I just gave in Baltimore to the Legatus chapter there, and it's about my holy heroes, three individuals from the book How They Love Mary, and I hope that you'll enjoy my insights into these individuals and that you'll enjoy this talk. I just checked my email earlier today to get all the details of the event, where it was, the address, the time, and I realized that it was actually one year ago today that you emailed me. So uh, a year in the making, here I am to be with you to share this uh, story of Our Lady and to share about some of the people in my own life that I've read, that I've studied that have exhibited a great love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I think one of the reasons, too, I think you have a a relationship, a friendship with Kevin Wells, who wrote a book called Priest and Beggar, and also The Priests We Need to Save the Church. And uh, it was actually a few years ago, or maybe last year, two years ago, whenever it was, that I was listening to Catholic Radio, Sirius XM, and he was doing an interview with Gus Lloyd. And I was just mesmerized by the story of Father Aloysius Schwartz, or Venerable Al Schwartz, and uh, I wanted to read the book right away. I ordered it, got it in, read the, read the biography in just a few days, and I was very touched by him, that story of that heroic priest, and uh, I think the relationship with Kevin Wells also somehow impacted me being here with you tonight. In the Gospel of St. John, when... Jesus is crucified, Mary stands there at the foot of the cross. She's there with John and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Jesus looking down from the cross. And as Roma Downey once told me, she said that Mary stood at the foot of the cross so that Jesus could look into the eyes of love. And as he looked into those eyes of love, he said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And then John, the beloved disciple, tells us that from that hour, he took Mary into his home. And I think really that's the beginning of the church's early Marian devotion, that John taking Mary into his home. In the early days of the church, according to some records that we have, there was this devotion to Our Lady. That in the first hundred years after Christ's death and resurrection, thinkers were thinking about Mary in terms of the new Eve. And then you have the earliest Marian prayer, the Subtuum. And then you have the Council of Ephesus and this evolving devotion to the Blessed Mother. I think tonight as we gather and we think about how they love Mary, maybe we ask that for ourselves. Well, how do I love Mary? How do you love Mary? What is your earliest memory of a Marian devotion? And for me, I'll answer those questions here just uh, briefly. So for me, my earliest memory of a Marian devotion would be that of my grandmother. Kind of interesting. I didn't grow up in a a faith-filled home, not the normal home that you would expect a priest would come from. My mother and father separated before I was born. I was raised partially by my grandmother and then also by my mother when she wasn't working. So they lived together. So my grandmother was a very 
influential person in terms of faith. My mother didn't go to mass. She didn't pray. And so my grandmother was left to hand on the faith to me. I remember her praying the rosary in her chair in the living room, maybe even in the late hours as she waited for my mother to come home. And so my grandmother took me to daily mass, and then I began praying the rosary at a young age with the ladies after church. And so that devotion began to slowly take root in my life. We might also ask, why do we love Mary? I think the answer to this question, why we love Mary, is because she is our mother. And I always go back to the words of St. Paul, who says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so if you want to be an imitator of Christ, what does that mean? It means that we should love the Blessed Virgin, that we should have a devotion to her, because Jesus loved her very much as his own mother. He spent 30 years with her, and if you read some of the mystics, maybe even Mary would have accompanied Jesus during his public years of ministry and would have been close by. We also love the Blessed Virgin, I think, because it's an imitation of the saints. Lots of the saints, all of the saints for that matter, have had some sort of devotion to Mary. In my life of studying the saints, that's what I've come to determine, that they all loved Mary, some in subtle ways and others in overt ways by their preaching and by their practices. Then we might ask, well, how do we love Mary? So we interiorly look and say, well, how do I have a devotion to the Blessed Virgin? The rosary is kind of the preeminent Marian devotion recommended by Our Lady to the children at Fatima as a way of securing peace for the world. You can also go on Marian pilgrimage, and tomorrow I intend to do that when I visit the National Shrine of Our Lady of Lourdes at Emmitsburg. And so you can go to a Marian shrine, either that one or some of the others, the Basilica here in Baltimore, or many of the other shrines all throughout the country. There are shrines to Our Lady in so many different cities. The oldest Marian shrine actually is in St. Augustine, Florida, Our Lady of La Leche, built back in the 1600s when the Spanish began to arrive there. So you could visit that shrine or the shrine and champion that I'll speak about in just a few moments. You can study Mary, you can have devotional prayers like the Memorari. There are other rosaries. We prayed the rosary earlier tonight. It was the Dominican rosary, the one that we so often know, but there's also the rosary of the seven sorrows and tomorrow being the feast of Our Lady of Sorrows, kind of appropriate, focusing on the seven sorrows of Mary. The Franciscans have a devotion called the seven joys also. There are litanies of Our Lady, many of them. There are songs and sacramentals. And all of these then really form the corpus of how we love the Blessed Virgin as individuals living our life in the church today. So tonight I really want to accomplish three things. The first is I want to share about how Marian devotion can change from time to time in the life of an individual believer. And that's something that I realized even this very year, that how I'm devoted to Mary this year, 
I know will not be the same next year. And I'll share a little bit about that. And then since the bishops of the United States have called for this Eucharistic revival, I want to share a little bit about how we can experience the Mass with Our Lady. And then thirdly, I want to share about the Marian apparition and champion, and specifically how that visionary, Adele Bryce, loved the Blessed Mother. So the very first point then, how Marian devotion for us will change. I became familiar with a blessed of the church, now a blessed, at the time he was only a venerable. His name is Solanus Casey. There's a shrine to Solanus Casey in Detroit, Michigan. That's where he lived out most of his life at St. Bonaventure Priory. But Solanus Casey actually has a tie to Wisconsin. He has a tie to my diocese. He grew up in Wisconsin in either the Diocese of La Crosse or Superior, kind of with boundary changes. It's changed since when he grew up. He also celebrated his first mass in Appleton, Wisconsin. There's no good reason why, except that this priest, Solanus Casey, was a Capuchin, and that was the nearest Capuchin parish for him to celebrate his first mass at. When he was discerning the priesthood, he invoked the intercession of Our Lady. He prayed a novena, especially in honor of the Immaculate Conception. Solanus Casey had actually wanted to be a diocesan priest. He went to St. Francis de Sales Seminary in Milwaukee, but they deemed him kind of intellectually unfit to be a priest. They didn't think he was the smartest guy for the job. So that's why he praised this novena to Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception, and he asked for direction. At the end of that novena, he received clarity of what he should do. He visited with the Capuchins, and he entered the seminary for the Capuchins. As a young boy, Bernard, or that was his birth name, but Solanus, he was wearing a scapular. And as he was swimming with his family and his siblings one day in a nearby pond or lake, he began to drown. And there was no one around him. He was all by himself at that particular moment, but he felt someone pull him up. And he was wearing the scapular and he said that he believed that it was Our Lady that saved his life. Priests, so the priests who are here tonight, we pray something called the Liturgy of the Hours, a prayer that the church has us obliged to by our ordination. Sometimes the lay faithful will pray the Liturgy of the Hours, but there's also another small little office called the Little Office of the Blessed Virgin kind of a, a abridged version of that prayer of the Liturgy of the Hours, and Solanus would pray that prayer in addition to his breviary. So he was going really over and above, beyond what the call of duty for him. But it was one way that he wanted to honor the Blessed Mother. My familiarity with Solanus came when he was beatified back in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Because I write a lot about saints and Mary, I thought, well, you know what? I should write something for his beatification about his Marian devotion. That would make sense. Publish it in some magazine or online e-zine. 
And I picked up a biography then to learn, well, did Solanus have a devotion to Our Lady? And that's how I learned many of these facts that I just shared with you. But one of the things that personally struck me was the life of Solanus, his life as a porter. So he would sit at the door of the monastery and people would come to him, just like people would flood to the confessionals to have Padre Pio hear their confessions. Solanus Casey had people come to the door. He was a simplex priest. He didn't have the faculty to hear confessions and they would simply ask him to pray for them. They would relate all of their troubles, all of their concerns, and then he would give them counsel and advice. And as I read the story of Solanus, one of the things when people would come to him, he had this great devotion to a Spanish mystic from the 1600s named Maria of Agreda. And Maria of Agreda, during her life as an abbess in the monastery, received the life of Mary in different revelations and prayer experiences that she had. She's recorded it in a four-volume work called The Mystical City of God, and it totals over 2,500 pages. And Solanus, what he would do is he would give a volume to the people that would come. He would say, well, I will pray for Johnny, you pray for Johnny too, and I want you to read from the mystical city of God. For whatever reason, whether revealed by God, I don't know, but Solanus believed in the efficacy of reading the mystical city of God. One of the marvelous things about it is that sometimes people would come back to him and they would say, little Johnny isn't getting any better. Why isn't he getting better, Solanus? And he would say, well, did you read from the mystical city of God? And they would say, no, it's on the coffee table. And he would tell them, you have to pick up the mystical city of God and begin reading from it. And they would come back to him and they would say, I began reading it and now little Johnny is doing better. So the efficacy of this biography, I don't understand it, but Solanus knew it and recommended it to so many. I was in Detroit a few months ago and visited the Solanus Casey Shrine and as you go through the museum, you can even see one volume that he has inscribed, that he wrote his name and gave it as a gift. So it's there, it's something that he did. When I was reading that biography of Solanus Casey back in 2017, my mother was, uh, had some ill health. She was a lifelong diabetic. She didn't really take care of herself much. And she had several toes on her foot amputated. And I knew that by the end of the year, they would amputate her leg. And I didn't know what that would mean for her, how she would, leave, how she would live her life as an amputee. And as I read that book about Solanus Casey, I learned that one night he was in the hospital, that he too was threatened with this reality of having his leg amputated, that the blood flow just wasn't happening. Solanus prayed, God gave him a miracle, and by the next morning, he didn't have to have his leg amputated. The blood flow had returned. And so I joined those two things together. This was May of 2017. I said, Solanus almost had his leg amputated. My mother's going to need her leg amputated. I'll pray to him for a miracle. And so I took up his advice even. I had bought the four volumes of the mystical city of God and they sat nicely on a bookshelf, never opened. 
that's probably not true. I had done some research about the life of Mary, but never read in their entirety. So I took off volume one and I began reading. Every night I would pray for my mother and then I would read a page or two from the mystical city of God. And making my way through that book, I probably only got to about page 150 because in just a few days, it will be the anniversary of my mother's death that she passed away. And so some would tell you that, well, you prayed that she would never have her leg amputated and now she's dead. But when I was at the funeral and celebrated that mass, I preached on answered prayers and I considered that an answered prayer that as I asked God through the intercession of Solanus and Maria of Agreda, that she would never have her leg amputated, well, that was given to her. That by death, being called home by God, that she was spared that event in her life. So I never picked up the mystical city of God again after that, kind of just left it. But for whatever reason, over the last year, I felt very compelled to begin reading it again. And so I uh, contacted a, a few different people who had a devotion to Maria of Agreda and said, what do you think? Father Mike Schmitz did a year with the Bible. Should I do a year with Maria of Agreda? And so every day in the year of 2022, I've been reading seven to eight pages of this mystical city of God. And it's been tremendous. It's had a spiritual effect on my soul, I know. And uh, it's been very enlightening, making my way through it and leading over a thousand other people in this reading of a very niche topic, but also a spiritual classic revealed to a very holy nun in Spain. So I also wanna share a little bit about the Eucharist and Mary, because we're in this year of, or three years for that matter, of Eucharistic revival. I'm the president, you heard, of the Mariological Society of America, a title that I don't really deserve, but they probably wanted a little younger blood and new vision or whatever, and so I was the guy tapped for the job. And it was a number of years ago, maybe 2019, 2018, that they were doing a series focusing on Mary and the sacraments. They did one year the sacraments of initiation, another year sacraments of vocation and healing. And when it was the sacraments of initiation, I thought, well, I'd really like to give a paper on this topic. I had my own idea in my mind of looking at some of these old prayers from the hand missiles of many years ago and seeing the references to Mary and seeing what they might tell us about her relationship to the Eucharist. Well, I found myself at the academic library that I always go to for these matters, and I pulled off uh, some of those missiles. I took photos even of the prayers that I was going to look at. But then there was a book that caught my eye, and I don't know why I pulled it off the shelf. It was called Christ in Me. So I pulled it off the shelf, and my initial thought was Christ in Me. Well, Mary had Christ in her, so maybe this is, if it's by the books about the Mass, Maybe it's about Mary and the Mass and the Eucharist. I open it up. It's a book by a Jesuit from the early 1900s named Father Daniel Lord. He was an American Jesuit in charge of the sodality of Our Lady. There's also a movement in St. Louis called the Queen's Work that he oversaw. 
He was a prolific writer in his life. He wrote over a million words, published like 38 books, 300 pamphlets. He was a prolific writer. And so this book, Christ in Me, when I opened it, looked at the table of contents, Father Lord would often go to convents of nuns and he would preach their masses. And then afterwards, just as we did tonight, we had a little moment, a pause for Thanksgiving after mass. But Father Lord would lead them kind of in a Jesuit imaginative prayer. And they would make their prayer of Thanksgiving by his words of recommendation. And in the table of contents, lo and behold, there were 12, 12 different meditations about Mary and the Eucharist from her first communion to her last communion to receiving communion and imitation with her and in Thanksgiving, and the list goes on. And I thought, well, maybe Father Daniel Lord, this is a guy I need to study a little bit. Maybe I should write about him write about Father Daniel Lord's Eucharistic Marian theology, and so I did. It resulted in another book called Meditations After Holy Communion, kind of renewing what he did. So Father Daniel Lord, he offered a few meditations, and as we kind of renew our own Eucharistic devotion, I think that maybe we can do so with Our Lady, as he recommended. He asked the question, when did Mary receive her first Holy Communion? He imagines this. It's not in scripture. It's just a pious musing. But his recommendation was, well, Mary was the first sacristan of the Last Supper, that Jesus celebrates this meal with his apostles. And then as they go off to the garden, as he prays his hour, well, Mary is there and she's cleaning everything up. And she comes to the chalice, and there's a drop of precious blood left, and maybe she took it to her mouth, and she received her first Holy Communion. Maybe we could consider what it was like for Mary to receive the Eucharist after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. As John took her into his home while well, she was close to the early church, she would have been there for these home church celebrations of the Eucharist as they broke bread and listened to the word of God as Justin Martyr kind of articulates in his work of apology. So what was it like for her in those early days? There's a beautiful, several beautiful images of Mary receiving communion from the hand of St. John one of them is in Hansville, Alabama, at the Shrine of the Blessed Sacrament. Another one is at a monastery of nuns. I was just there for the profession of a sister, a cloistered nun in Rockford at the Poor Clare Colatine Monastery. But John, and it was an image that I used for my, for my uh, holy card for my ordination. And so John giving Mary Holy Communion. But for her, she who carried the word of God in her womb and gave birth to him and lived with him. This was the moment after he withdraws himself physically after the resurrection and the ascension. This was the way in which she was able to commune with her son once again through the gift of the Holy Eucharist. We might consider how did she pray? As she receives the Lord, what did she do? How did she make her thanksgiving? Did she make prayers of petition? 
What was it like in her interior life as she received the Lord in Holy Communion? Father Daniel Lord said that we can receive communion in union with Mary and thanksgiving with Our Lady in imitation of her. But then here's another one that you can meditate about sometime. What about Mary's last Holy Communion? Today, we would call it viaticum. The priest would come, and if the person's able, they'd be able to receive the Eucharist, their food for the journey to the heavenly kingdom. And so, at the end of Mary's life, this is what my thesis was on, but it was about the Assumption of Our Lady. And Our Lady, according to tradition, which emerges really at the latter 400s, maybe early 500s, Nobody talked about the Assumption of Our Lady until then. And for Our Lady then, the traditions, one of the Dormition accounts, the Transitus Mariae, says that all of the apostles gathered around her. And then if you read the mystics, like Maria Vagrida or Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, they would say that there she received her last Holy Communion. The apostles join together in prayer around she who is the queen of apostles. And so if we want to look to Mary and to see how we can love her and learn from her, maybe we can do so when we receive Holy Communion. Then a third person that I just want to mention as well, Adele Bryce. She's the visionary from the champion Marian apparition. She was born in Belgium in a little town called Dion-Leval on January 30th of 1831. Growing up as a young girl, she was known for her religious piety. When she made her first Holy Communion, there were several girls that gathered around the altar of Our Lady and promised the Blessed Mother that they would become missionaries, that they would join a religious order and convent and serve in the foreign missions. But for Adele in the 1850s, her family wanted to come to the United States. Others were already coming and they came here in hope of a prosperous life, leaving behind their home country. And she was faced with that question, do I stay and become a religious? Do I follow with my family? She took it to her parish priest, asked for counsel, what am I to do? And the parish priest said, well, if you're to become a sister, It'll be realized in the United States. Go with your family. So Adele boards that boat at the age of 24, comes here to the United States. They make their way to what I call the thumb of Wisconsin, which is the Door Peninsula, and they make their home there. They begin to farm the land, and for four or five years after their arrival, Adele is working for her father. She's taking sacks of grain, taking it to the gristmill. And on one fateful day, Our Lady appeared to her. It was in the early days of October of 1859. And in this first apparition of Our Lady, she says nothing. She just saw this woman and she continues on her way to the gristmill, goes home, tells her family that night, I saw a woman, but she vanished. I don't know if it was a ghost. I don't know who it was. Her family, being of the religious sort, said, well, maybe it was a poor soul in purgatory. Offer your prayers for the poor souls. 
And so that's what Adele did. But then, as she was going to church on the next Sunday, October 9th of 1859, she encountered that same woman. Now this time, she had two friends with her. She stopped, her friends kept walking, and then the woman again vanished. She said to her friends, well, did you see this woman? No, no, we didn't see her. So Adele was puzzled, and so she went to Mass. She found the priest afterwards and related to him what she had been experiencing, that a beautiful woman was appearing to her and then vanishing but never spoke. And the priest said, well, ask her, in God's name, who are you and what do you want of me? And so she did just that because Our Lady returned as she was walking home that Sunday. And so with her sister and the neighbor alongside her, she begins speaking with Our Lady. In God's name, who are you and what do you want of me? And Our Lady said, I'm the Queen of Heaven who prays for the conversion of sinners, and I wish you to do the same. You received Holy Communion this morning and that as well, but you must do more. Make a general confession and offer your communion for the conversion of sinners. For if they do not convert and do penance, my son will be obliged to punish them. These two young women who were alongside Adele said, Adele, who is it? Why can't we see her as you do? And Adele said, Neil, the woman says she's the queen of heaven. So the girls knelt. Our lady says, blessed are they who believe without seeing, quoting the words of our Lord in the Gospel of St. John. And then Mary asks Adele a question. She says, why are you standing here in idleness while your companions are working in the vineyard of my son? And Adele said, what am I to do? And Mary said, gather the children and teach them. And Adele said, but what am I to teach them? She said, teach them their catechism. Teach them how to make the sign of the cross and how to approach the sacraments. This is what I wish you to do. Go and fear nothing, for I will help you. That's the message that Mary spoke to this visionary in Wisconsin, and it completely changed her life. Not yet a religious sister, she would go on to found a religious third order, she would be called Sister Adele. She would wear a habit. She joined these other companions around her, and they carried out the work of evangelization. And maybe we could ask, well, how is it that Adele loved the Blessed Mother? Well, the first way she loved Mary was by listening. She listened to that message, and then she put into action what it was that she was told to do. Gather the children, teach them. Adele dedicated her whole life to that mission. Where I serve in Brussels, Wisconsin, it's said that Adele walked in that land and she taught people in that area, going as far as 50 miles from the place of apparition. And so she carried out this mission and then by founding that religious community and a school, she was able to love Mary by doing what she was told that's one of the things that I marvel at with the Fatima children, that Our Lady appears to them, they're just children, nine, 10, 13 years old. And Our Lady says to them, pray the rosary every day for peace in the world, 
tells Francisco, you'll go to heaven, but you have to pray many rosaries. But they did it. They prayed the rosary every day. They followed that instruction of Our Lady. And so for Adele, she did that with evangelization and prayer and sacraments. Adele also loved Mary, I think, by her trust in her intercession. This was something that Our Lady said, go and fear nothing, for I will help you. For Adele, she experienced many different troubles all throughout her life after the apparition. She founds this group of sisters. And what happens is that sometimes their checkbook would almost be in the negative balance. And so they would pray, they'd go to the chapel and they would pray that their needs would be met. And sure enough, they were. Someone would drop off the food they needed for the next day. Someone would give generously to help them in the cause of the work they were doing. There's a great miracle that took place in regards to this apparition of Our Lady in 1859. So the apparition in 1859, 12 years later to the very eve of that day of October 9th, a fire breaks out in a little village called Peshtigo. It's the same day as the great Chicago fire as well. And that fire then begins to ravage and burn also in Wisconsin. Some say being carried over the water. And as it began to burn and as it threatened the shrine and champion, the chapel, the convent, the sisters, and everything in its sight, all of the people flocked there from the neighboring area. The people went into the church, they took a statue of Our Lady, they processed around the grounds, and really a miracle in itself that as the fire continued to brew, that they didn't suffocate because of inhaling the smoke. But on the morning of October 9th of 1871, 12 years later, on this afterbath of the fire, the people look out and they see that the property was spared, that they are alive, but everything else around them had been burnt. One writer said that it was like an emerald island amid a sea of ash. A great miracle, but Adele trusted Go and fear nothing, for I will help you. And in that moment, Our Lady's help came to her. Another way that, Our La that Adele loved Our Lady was by teaching the children different songs. Let me just, uh, I'll read you a, a little uh, passage from the book here. Page 37. Well, so Sister Marie de Sacrecourt shared her memory of Adele. I remember well, when I was about eight years old, we would pray and sing hymns around the trees where the Blessed Virgin had appeared to Sister Adele. Another, Sister Pauline recounted, I knelt in the dear little chapel and sang with Adele her favorite hymn in French, Chaton le nom admirable de la Reine de Sioux. And so another way in which she loved Our Lady was by singing her songs. Of course, on Marian feast days, we have that opportunity to sing songs to Our Lady like Immaculate Mary or Hail Holy Queen. Tomorrow, the feast of Our Lady of Sorrows, the church will 
remember the words of the Stabat Mater, the hymn in honor of Our Lady of Sorrows. So that's one way that we can love in anticipation or similarly to that of Adele. Adele also loved Our Lady by a very special title. And I think in our own lives and in our own devotion, there are different titles of Mary that might resound with us. That if you go through the litany of Loretto, that maybe there's one of those titles there that really speaks to you. And it's one that you invoke. Early in my podcast, I was asking lots of the guests, what is your favorite title of Our Lady? And many of them would say Star of the Sea. So maybe you have a favorite title of Our Lady. It could be one of these titles that she's been given from the scriptures. Maybe it's a title of her regalness as a queen. Maybe it's some other title, like a location, like Our Lady of Guadalupe or Our Lady of Fatima. For Adele, she loved Our Lady as Our Lady of Good Help or Notre Dame de Bon Secours. That's what the shrine and champion is called, Our Lady of Good Help. But yet, Mary didn't reveal herself as that. She said, I am the Queen of Heaven who prays for the conversion of sinners. But this devotion to Our Lady of Good Help began during her time in Belgium. It was a very popular devotion in her area, her region of Belgium. And when they built the very first chapels in honor of the apparition, she said, I want that name inscribed above the door. So she had a special devotion to a title of Our Lady. And so now we come to us. For us, we have our own devotion to Our Lady, shaped by our life experiences, maybe as a child growing up, different prayers, maybe by a statue that you have in your home. Many saints have had devotion to particular images of Our Lady that they grew up with. One of them being St. Therese of Lisieux, who was healed by a statue of Our Lady coming to life in her bedroom. Father Patrick Payton, or Venerable Patrick Payton, had an image of Our Lady in which he promised her that he would go all in for her if she would obtain his healing so that he could be ordained a priest. Father Lucas Etlin, a monk of Conception Abbey in Missouri, had an image of Our Lady that he prayed in front of every day. And Pope Benedict, when he would walk around the gardens in the Vatican, would stop before an image of Our Lady always and say a prayer. So maybe a statue can have some sort of importance for us. Could be a pilgrimage that we went on, that we continue to hold that memory in our lives. The thing that I found about Marian devotion is that it's not the same for everybody. And for me, as I'm reading the mystical city of God this year, I know that next year I'm not going to be reading the mystical city of God. So I know my devotion of spiritual reading about Our Lady will be different. And so for us at different times of our life, that devotion to Our Lady might look a certain way and over time it might change. But for all of us, it's up to us to heed those words of Jesus as he spoke them on the cross. As he said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And as he said that to Mary and John, he says it to us today so that we might take Mary into our homes, 
that we might live with her right now in our ordinary experiences of life so that one day we might attain the eternal glory of heaven where she reigns as queen of heaven. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to share a little bit about Our Lady tonight. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show and for all the many ways that you support the podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, be sure to check out Sock Religious. I love their socks. I love their shirts. And so go over to Sock Religious, use the link in the show notes and buy some holy socks or some holy shirts that you can wear to evangelize your family and your friends. If you also want to support the podcast, I invite you to please share the podcast with your friends or on your social media platforms. Rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't mind, please follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My handle is at FR Edward Looney. You'll see all of the posts, all of the content that I put out each week by following me there. Thanks so much again for listening today. Know that I am entrusting you to the heart of Mary, asking her to pray for you this day and every day. And if you don't mind, say a prayer for me too. Let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.